And I always tell folks, I don't want to, I don't want Expedia's leadership team to understand 100% of what I believe myself and my team know. But I do want them to understand the 20% of my role that absolutely matters to them. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and on today's show, I speak with Charlie McNerney, CISO of Expedia Group, about shared responsibility when it comes to cybersecurity, the notion of trust, and how diagnosing a problem before treating it has served him. When you're the CISO at a business that's already suffered a data breach, making sure cooler heads prevail going forward can be challenging. How do you achieve this while you're managing risk, building trust, and keeping a diverse commerce engine running? Okay, Charlie, thank you so much for being on the show. For those that don't know you, uh, if you would, uh, tell us about yourself. Thanks, um, Steve, for having me. So, Charlie McNerney, and a little bit about myself. Been in the security practice for well over 25 years and spent time in the financial services sector, but most recently, the last 25 years at uh, Microsoft, I kind of refer to it as the floppy drive to cloud era. And then a little bit of time away, I thought I'd retired a couple of years ago. And then most recently, found myself uh, back after getting called by a friend of mine to join and see if I couldn't help them a little bit uh, at Expedia, which I thought, oh, that'll be fun just to help. And what do you know? I, I ended up uh, back into the circuit. So I'm the chief information security officer for Expedia Group and uh, pretty excited and looking forward to you know the work that I have ahead of me there. I have to ask this. 25 years, you were going to retire. You were retired. Yes. <laughs> You were probably excited for that chapter, as many of us would be, especially after such a long run at a company, great company like Microsoft. How quickly did it take for you to become bored? Oh, great question. I'd probably say probably around that sixth or seventh month, because you got all those tasks to get done first. And I just remember my wife just saying, I don't know what you're going to do in this retirement thing when we were talking about it before, but you know, she was very clear. She has a schedule, and my job was not to mess up her schedule. I could do whatever I wanted, right? So, but I just found myself from the standpoint of what we call the what's your plan B? We bought a boat, and we're doing the travel thing, and but you just can only clean it so many times. We have a great, we got a great golden retriever, and you can only walk it so many times. And then you realize that you really don't have that plan. That can't be. You can't just say, well, it's golf and, you know, but I certainly had plenty of time to read. I, I had plenty of time to do other things. And yet I still had this itching. And I, I don't know, I think it was more on the, you know, that I called it the intellectual income exercise. And I wasn't sure that I had a good plan for that. But I think that that materialized in the context by which I got called from a friend of mine at Expedia, indicating that they were looking for some practice help in their security uh, team. and. You know, when I talked to them, it just looked like I could help them out and 
the next thing you know, I'm, I'm there as a consultant trying to uh, get some work done with them, and boom, next I'm, I'm full time, but not for a long time. <laughs> yeah, many. I mean, many people would say, "Oh, I, I'm going to golf every day for the rest of my life, and that's that's going to be enough." But you call, you talked about, and I, I've actually never heard the term, but this sort of other type of income, this intellectual income, and yeah. so it just so happened that you had a colleague reach out. You weren't phoning people up saying, "Hey, I'm bored." Not you at had... all. I was no too busy putting wax on the boat. <laughs> And so, you know, and then I I did take the phone call and it really was about asking about a colleague that I had worked with before as to uh, somebody who was joining Expedia, just talking about that. And then it was, you know, she had remembered, oh, wait a minute, I knew he was in that security stuff. And, and then she said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, right now, nothing fun. And that's what she said. I think you can help us. I didn't even think about it, Charlie. And then the next thing you know, one conversation spins to the next and you go in and you just realize you can actually help them. And so I, my wife said, well, you know, you can, you can figure it out. But, uh, if you want to go help them, go help them. And so I kind of got into it. And you can just tell that this is different. It's a completely different company from its, uh, from its IQ. And just now I didn't have any idea that the rest of the stuff was going to come with. But uh, in terms of COVID and all the resets and a new chairman, and you know, that all came later. But uh you know, I, I remember talking to her recently and said, wow, you really set me up for success in this new role. <laughs> I want to put a pin in that because the COVID stuff and this sort of reset had to have hit Expedia very hard, or at least has changed the way things happen there, I'm sure. I want to get to that, but there's a, a, a longer runway there before there's some other things I think you can share with us for sure. So relatively new CISO at Expedia, how long were you there at a, as a consultant? When did that start? And then how long did it take you to become CISO? Like when, the, when did that all transition take place? The role was come in and help them get ready for a CISO, which was really attacking kind of an assess as to where they currently were, looking at helping them kind of create a strategy as to what they wanted to be, and then looking for a replacement, which is what I agreed to help them to do. But the more we got into it, the more you start meeting different colleagues and different uh, partners, et cetera. You know, the more they're kind of recognizing that you've got some, you know, obviously some experience and strength at this role. And so they they started to kind of speculate, hey, have you thought about it? And would this be something? And you're like, no, I'm just, no, I, let me get you ready for the next person. And, and then it comes down to the, you know, the decision, which is once they created the offer, it was really about, I think I was there five months with a six-month contract. And then everybody got super serious about it in the last 30 days as to what I wanted to do for a few years. So I really like that position, sort of prepping them for what they want. So getting the organization straightened around and discussing with others, what do they really want their security program to be before you begin to look for the candidate? How did you, did you just wing that? Did you have, I mean, surely you didn't, but I mean, how did you approach that? Because you're going in, they, they, you're trusted because you're, you're coming from a friend. What was your process to go through and say, okay, guys, look, you need a new, a new leader here. This is the stuff that you need to figure out. What did you talk to him about? From my standpoint, it was, does the company understand its risk posture now? Hmm. And I really wanted to make sure, you know, who, who with the company thought that that was super important? Was that a controller? Was it the board of directors? Was it 
the president of an operating group? Was it, you know, the person that thinks about the brands? You know, who is responsible for risk at Expedia Group? And I found that fascinating because I found multiple owners. And generally there are, but in this case, I'm looking for, you know, well, who really owns the operating environment for risk at the company? And it was, you know, finding one of the presidents of the operating group, John Kim, who absolutely owns that. And that's the representative to the board. And it was really getting his uh, energy and his curiosity, because the more we spent time together, the more he started to really you know, peel back all the various layers of risk that he knew about in the company and was just learning about, well, I didn't know about that, right? You know, I didn't even know we had a strategy for that, or I actually didn't know we don't have a strategy for that. And I think it was through that dialogue, and, and I, I was super open, right? Because I didn't, my skin in the game was to help them be successful by creating a strategy, looking at the talent and thinking about what they wanted to be and getting that defined so that this North Star opportunity could become something that they could march to. And it was in that curiosity that I found, wow, these guys are super interested in it. Nobody, I mean, they've got it. And they and they have, and, and it's publicly known, they, they have had breaches in the past. Their orbits uh, breach from a few years ago obviously was a galvanizing event for them on a newly acquired company that had a problem and they inherited that problem. But it was theirs to fix. It was kind of how they fixed that, that I think they really thought about what the security uh, issue was going to be. And I found it fascinating that, you know, when I met people, they said, well, our security team is really only three years old. Of course, I was at Microsoft when we sold uh, um, MSN uh, from, or Expedia out of Microsoft in 1997. And I remember telling them it had a security team then. Wow. You know, so it was one of those things where they're like, oh, wait a minute, it comes back to roost. Barnett, <laughs> <laughs> he really was there. Right. So it was, uh, in that sense, I think it was, and I would say, it was kind of a two ears, one mouth dialogue because I really wanted to to learn and to hear and to listen. And I, I had met across, you know, their people teams, their operating groups, controllership, legal, you know, their the the privacy teams. You know, they're they're a global company and one of the top ten commerce sites that's that's operating in the in the world. So naturally you wanna you wanna think about all of that. And I just found their curiosity um, was was amazing to really ask precise questions about what they wanted to know where their holes were and they wanted to know where they were supposed to be heading. And that, that to me was a dialogue that I felt like, hey, there's a lot of energy here. They want to fix this. Let's lean in. Well, Charlie, yeah, it sounds like that they had initially when you said the word curiosity, which you've said three or four times now, which I really like, I thought you were trying to get their curiosity, to make them curious about these risks, but it sounds like they were already curious. They already had kind of the the desire to learn about this. They just may not have had a resource to explain it to them in their language. Is that roughly accurate? I think that's fair, Steve. I think they had lots of people in the company that felt like they had a role in that, but not an owner. And I don't think anybody asked the question, who does this who does this fall on? If something were to occur, who do we put out in front of the media? Who's our spokesperson for issues around trust and integrity of this company? How does an organization um, in general, I don't want to put this on your current employer, but how does a organization get into that situation where there may have been a director of security or even a CISO in a spot? Maybe they're there, maybe they're no longer there. 
but there was a program, there was a figurehead, and yet the company doesn't know kind of who the focal is. And you've come in and helped to find that now, but how does an organization get into that position? How does that happen? First, the company's got to decide what's important. And I do think that there are different leaders that will determine what's important from the context of when you say trust, not security, just trust. And, and you think about it broadly, you think about integrity. Um, every company is a tech company today. There's data, there's transactions, there's, uh, you, know, you know, compute, stores, not what they sell, and even how they sell it uh, from, a, from, you know, their web presence or just being a company with a ton of tech. Nobody's immune today from hearing about all of the various impacts around the globe with respect to hackers and, and account takeovers, et cetera. I think, um, generally speaking, when a company decides that it's important, that it's, it's part of their DNA to make sure that customers do trust them and that their partners trust them, their suppliers trust them, and that we equally ask for that back and forth from each other, I think those are fair. I think our regulatory environments, whether you're in the payment card industry or socks or whatever, you all have to just agree that this is the way we're going to treat each other. And in my view, that's different because you can have corporate security from the standpoint of identity or access, but you also have line of business and applications and you know platforms. And so people have to, you know, there is shared responsibility. And it's one of those things where I think it's everybody's responsibility at a company today to be involved in this notion of trust and having a role and responsibility that says, my job is obviously to, to help protect this environment. And that, that to me is when, when you can start making that happen. The other one is I think generally boards are becoming a lot more aware of impacts and reputational impacts and impacts to financials, impacts to how long does it take for a company to win back its trust depending on what's been, what's been compromised. Today, it's, you, you don't know based on the headline. And I always tell folks, it's like, if you were to go to a beach today and you're just hanging out there, and I want you to know that if you just yelled the term shark, I promise you that everybody in that water will have one view and one image of what that looks like. And it will be a man-eater and it will be huge and they will run out of the water when in fact we know there's over you know 50 species of sharks and all of them have a fin. But nobody knows that until you get into it, you forensically take a look at it. In this case, that's the same way with security, because people have different definitions of it. In many cases, the security team will be the ones that bring you all of that vagueness or that risk, and this is why we have to do it, and we're worried about these adversarial conditions. Until you teach others what it is that they're protecting, right? And I always tell folks, I don't want to, I don't want Expedia's leadership team to understand 100% of what I believe myself and my team know. But I do want them to understand that 20% of my role absolutely matters to them. Mm. And when you make that conversion, you start taking something massively and turning it into something manageable. I like that figure. So you're not expecting all the other. You, the first part of what you said, I think, is you can't do it all alone. No. Even if you have an organization that is asking the right questions and gives you that conduit in and the visibility in and all the rest. You need that sort of tribal support. And the way, I think, from what I heard from you, the way that you make that happen is that 20% rule to say, look, I don't expect you 
vice president of whatever to care about all of what I do. In fact, but there's 20% of what I do that is really important that you really should care about. And then knowing how to distill that out, right? Which is a whole nother art and science, which I'm sure you do extremely well. I think when you and I chatted before, I said, you know, one of one of my models in my head is I tend to think more like, you know, it's the medical model to me applies most to this thing we call trust. And that's, you know, I expect it's symptom diagnosis, treatment, recovery, and, you know, and it's in that order. And that we do know that if we treat before we diagnose, it equals malpractice. And there's a whole industry built for that too. <laughs> and my sense of it is to make sure that the, those symptoms are super important and not to sensationalize. The fact that something, some condition could occur, it's really important not to put it in my risk term as much as to put it into their transaction terms. What's happening? Your customers are being impacted by not being able to sign on or not being able to connect. Does that mean DDoS? It could, but we got to deal with that. What I'm telling you now is your customers aren't able to connect to your commerce engine. And we need to find out why. Right. That part of it is a great conversation to have as opposed to we're being DDoSed and everybody in a room. And uh, you don't want to, like I said, I, I tend to not sensationalize what's going on until I know what it is. Once I know what it is, then I can come back. In my case, we can treat it appropriately. We can treat it with the severity that is necessary and then involve everybody into that decision making. Once I've decided and helped them to determine what what is the intent of what's going on here? How do we free everybody up? So that's it's more of the student, teacher, coach role and knowing when not to be all three of them at the same time. <laughs> well, I think that, that the other thing that uh, I had to learn the hard way uh, in my career uh, that I think you're covering here, but I'll highlight is the fact that you're having these conversations, you're not having to make an introduction to those people that own those business lines or this this commerce site in this example, you're not having to do that in a crisis. You're not having to make an introduction to them. So you're not having to gain their trust in the middle of a crisis. You've already had a conversation about kind of what's important to them. And they're concerned about customer experience. And a subset of that is being able to log in and you cover a subset of what could prevent that transaction from being successful. And you've already kind of coached them on that is, is kind of the path. So if there's a a listener here that's you know wanting to go down that same uh, road. Does that sound? Does that? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's the notion that there's a playbook, right? Sure. And and you have to have them, and whether it's continuity or it happens to be, it you know when an event turns into or an investigation turns into an event, it's knowing the difference between those, and you know not trying to. You certainly don't want to you know create a, some sort of a mechanism or of awareness that people will speculate, right? I, I tend to want to make sure, let's get the data, let's make it visible, let's hope for rationality over time. I understand impact, right? Clearly do. There's no CISO that, that I know that's been super successful at standing in front of anybody's revenue train. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Right. It absolutely happens when you're part of that solution and not the person that's in this governance, yes, no, maybe world. I think it's imperative that these teams have a level of accountability to that outcome as much as I do. And I tell them my job is really about informed risk. I'm not there as the yes, no person. There's a lot of central governance around security teams, like somehow they're the magical yes, no, maybe group. Those teams 
really, when you, when you just survey generally how people feel about them, they always say, you know, the security team's a tough one to work with. And I don't like that. What I want to do is come in on the, you know, informed risk. Yes, I fully understand what you want to do in this app. However, should you take that stance, this is the risk you're taking on behalf of the shareholders of this company. And I'm not sure that people have people that think they have these responsibilities or have this authority do. So when you get it to them in terms called, I just don't, you know, I'm telling you that we're going to just probably not our best move. And also we'll talk to people about whether or not I think they have the authority to execute on that. Because I know that you're the app person, but you're not the person representing shareholders, travelers, customers, partners, suppliers. They're not in the room today, but yet they're all going to be impacted by something you want to do. So how do I get them in the room so that we can all decide this risk and what to do about it? I'm okay. Once we all decide, I'm good. But up until then, I have an obligation to protect this company, and and I, I think it's important. That's a pretty good question to ask, I think, if you're in a room. Now, you better be big enough to back it up if you ask it. But you know, repeating what you said, uh, or maybe paraphrasing some of it is, you know, I'm not sure you have the, the authority to act on that uh, and raising kind of the issues. Said in the, in the wrong environment, that could be kind of a chilling thing or maybe a very good thing to, to, to calm people down and say, okay, or to slow them down and say, well, I'm, I'm not sure, it, it, providing you explain to say, here's the larger I think you have to, right? Right, think, right? But it's a little bit back to that medical thing. I, there's, there's certainly what we know. Right? And I always say, you know, the problem with high blood pressure is it has no visible symptom. You really only get it with the, the cuff or the other tests. In this case, you also have that same issue with a dialogue when it comes to different people. There's always what they know. Mm-hmm. However, what they're not always sure is what, you know, what does it mean to our environments? You know, is that, is that something that we look at and say, well, that has no impact to any other customer impacting system? Let me see. We're all on one commerce engine. Yeah, wait a minute. That looks like you could be impacting other people's businesses and they don't know that. So let's inform them. Let's get them in a room. Let's talk about the one thing that we all have in common, which is air and water. And you're just about ready to make that not so cool. So let's talk about it. And like I said, I'm not, once we talk about it, there are people that are paid in the company to decide on, on that, on that level of impact. And once they go, my job is to mitigate downstream risk from whatever we choose, but it's not to be the person that gets and says, no, we're absolutely not going to do it. Right. One of the things that, that I always ask potential guests, and we went down a, a really interesting path, is advice that you'd give your younger self. So starting off earlier in your career, and you, to me, shared this idea of being able to understand the differences between competition and collaboration and kind of knowing when to do uh, one or the other. For the listener, tell us a little bit about what you meant by that when we discussed it earlier. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, it was the difference between, you know, competition and cooperation. Sorry. Yeah. 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 And in that sense, I wish I had learned the differences between those early on, as you say, to my younger Charlie. I think generally, uh, you know, when you're thinking about early in career and learning and, you know, you're thinking about, you know, what's, how did I do this year? What's my next year? What's my, you know, what's my impact on the company? What income do I want to do it? You have a tendency to get a little competitive with yourself. And by the way, at times with others about 
something called role or title or something that you think is a benefit to decisions that move you forward. And at times we forget that in that view of being competitive in my workplace, I may be missing the opportunity from a cooperative standpoint to be a good team member and to also think about, you know, the the other things that are great about that model as opposed to the competitive model. Because I think in the competitive model, it tends to be a self-done. It's a I win, you lose. The other one says we, we both have a potential to win. It depends on what we want to do about it collectively. And I, I wish that I would have spent more time on the cooperative standpoint than I did on the, you know, how, how fast can I be a, a general manager at Microsoft or how fast can I be a director or a principal? Or, and what you realize is that, you know, when you get there, you're, you're leaving things behind like relationships that you are really going to need later. And so I, I, it took me a long time. I wish I would have done it differently. And I wasn't bad at it. No, I just, you know, I've got great relationships. I just wish I, I would have uh, handled them with a we and what do you think and what are you hearing? And is that, you know, how do we think about that? And you miss the opportunity to get that openness as opposed to, no, I can decide that. No, we're going to go. We're, we're just going left. And you miss that. But even before you're in a place to make a decision, before you're in a place of authority, when you're still an individual contributor, let's say you're speaking to, you're mentoring someone who's 25 years old right now, and they're an individual contributor. They want to go into leadership. They want to go into management, but they're hell bent on push, push, push and career. And what's the next title and what's the next pay band. You mentioned something earlier about feedback and obviously then relationships. Yeah. What's the direct message to that person? Is it slow down? Is it is it a position of a little more feeling and emotion, a little more emotional intelligence? Is it, what is the sort of the tactical advice that you'd give? To make sure that what you're what you're engaging in is it more important for you to be right at this very moment, or is it more important for you to manage these relationships and have these one-off conversations differently? not to be invisible moments where everybody creates the same take. Mm. Because you're, you're mostly in group settings. You're not always individual. Uh, in group settings, people challenge the, they try to push that intelligence a little bit more. And I always say, eh, someone who says, oh, they're the smartest person in the room. They're all smart people in the room. Think about where they've come from. Right. How do I tease that out and say, you know, Steve, really, what do you think? You know, I'd love to hear your opinion. And 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 Steve normally doesn't talk. I want to start pulling those perspectives out, especially in this industry, where everybody's got you know broad uh, learning, broad backgrounds, um, and you know they're hard enough people to find now with really good deep depth, you know, depth. So you want to find people that are a little bit more broad, which means you do need to coach them and pull things out of them because. When you, when you get them in the right spots, I'm amazed at the types of, of, of you know, impacts that they can have on conversation because they're dealing with the problem. So those, those types of things are, are really, it's really in the dialogue, in my view. I think you, in order to be successful at that, I think also as a future leader or leader, you have to really give a damn about the person you're interacting with. You have to think about them. You talk about we come from these broad backgrounds. We we're all very unique. You've got to try to understand them, and not just superficially. You've got to you've got to look into their eyes and try to figure out okay who 
who is this person really? And then shut up and listen, and then try to do something with the group that maybe aligns or maybe acts on that. And I don't know that everybody is is always ready to do that, uh, even even those of us that are pretty far along in our career, because that's a lot of baggage. That's a lot of thinking. That's a lot of a lot of mental muscle to figure that stuff out. Like what? It, mm-hmm. what, it, what I think, it, yeah. You know, what advice do you have to that? Because a lot of people are going to listen to this and say, you know, I'm not one of them. I've seen the value of this in my own life and career. In fact, I'm big into, into servant leadership and all the rest mm-hmm. of this before it was even a term. But so I'm in. But what do you say to the guy or the gal that says, this sounds like a bunch of BS. Like, I don't need any of this. I am the smartest one in the room. And I'm going to mm-hmm. say left versus right. And I'm already on track to make principles. So what does this guy know? Like, what's the, right. what's the pop in the mouth that you give back to that? That you really don't have to be nice to anybody while you're climbing the corporate ladder because no one will see you when you free fall. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really that, I think it's the notion of, can you just for a moment realize that, I say this, we, we are responsible for other people's kids no matter how old they get. And with that comes, when I look at just myself, and, and, and I'm talking early Charlie to today, um, there is this thing about standing on other people's shoulder, uh, you know, shoulders and being able to recognize that in a team setting, people will lift those that are super important. You just got to remember to thank people along that journey. And when you don't, suddenly you find, and you see it, I, I, I've seen untold times where I know exactly how far that person's going to get because they're going to run into this wall where there's nobody like them in front of them anymore. (laughs) They all, at at some point in their life, when they meet them most, those people will have already transitioned through that change and are now going to be coaching you to change unless you can't. Well, no, I I took that as sort of, instead of the Peter principle, I guess maybe the the Charlie principle where there's, you're only going to go as far as you can when, as soon as the audience changes where it's not somebody like you in front of you, you're done, right? You're kind of, you're, you're, you're finished and you better see that change coming. It gradually to suddenly. <laughs> it happens because we see that in corporate change. You people, you see people who are aligned in a certain way and, and symptoms, camps, whatever you call it, but they're aligned until all of a sudden they're not. And now we have a change. And suddenly you're now, instead of the team moving forward, you're the individual that everybody's been waiting for someone to just say, this is the concern of our team. And Mm -hmm. with somebody new, you get that opportunity and sometimes those changes occur. We see it all the time. You know, it's like, well, what happened to to Bob or Sally? They were here yesterday and what do you know? They met the the person on the other side that's not like them. Happens to be uh, much different and having a different learned experience. Charlie, you said something earlier, and you, you mentioned it last time we spoke, but you mentioned the idea of children, and they, they are, are they their kids, or are you talking about the fact that, that you are sort of influencing their home life, or that they should be thought of as children? Do you expand on that a little bit when you mentioned the idea of this sort of parenting and children uh, relationship in this sort of arc that we're discussing? Well, I think it's more on the leadership principle of it. The the reason I say that we're responsible for other people's kids, no matter how old they get, is because for those of us that, that are in that, you know, coaching, teaching, nurturing, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a dad and, you know, I've got four daughters and I, I want them to meet people 
who are very much uh, along the not to be a parent. There's the, you know, you don't go to work. This isn't like we're putting a star when we were in grade school. We put a star on the refrigerator so our parents would say hi to us every time they opened the fridge. This is this is actually being paid to learn. So when people do that investment and they take that time, I I want to be around people who are going to be open to coaching and and feedback, open to giving and receiving it in both ways. I I have to tell you when I when I go into Expedia Group and I love it. Um, it's a it's an incredible energy. And yet I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm not on the young side of that equation, so I feel a little daycareish at times <laughs> walking around in there and and. And these folks are all looking to you, and the questions are amazing, and, and they give you the respect of that experience, not age, it's the experience. My desire to help them to see something that I know they're going to go through in advance is super helpful. So I think we do have to be, I, I want people to, you know, I want my daughters to meet people who are going to be encompassing uh, and learning and, and have a lot of clarity and, and energy for for what they're doing in their careers versus, you know, you just meet somebody that's you know, just there and run, just knows that you're there to perform a task and you get paid for that task. And then we got to review you for that task, but you're not getting better. You're not getting healthier. Right. Charlie, I completely agree. There's, there's too many people I know that have wasted parts, chapters of their career getting caught into that vacuum. And some people don't have the, the ability to either recognize it because you get caught in the process. Uh, or maybe the strength to to fire their bosses, as my father right. used to say, right? And and that's that is a rare thing. So it makes me happy, makes me smile to think that there's a collection of people at Expedia that are excited to kind of get that feedback from you, the experience, which does sometimes come from age, right? We have a larger collection of observations and, and really failures that we can pull from, uh, right. hopefully, right? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a really valuable David, thing. I'm sorry, but it's one of those things where, and I and I use this today. I think that it's you. You have this incredible opportunity. You get this one shot at call it whatever that life is going to be, no matter what path you've taken—a great path sideways. But we've all arrived at some point together to be here now. So mm-hmm. it matters now. And in my case, it's like I tell folks, and you know, there's people who are, say that you know, I, I said love. What is it? You hear them all the time, just living for the weekend. And I'm thinking, oh, what a horrible life, right? Because you're so, you know, pissed off by Friday that <laughs> it takes you all day Saturday to figure out how to unwind. And then you realize Sunday comes around and it's really early to Monday morning. And I, and I even tell folks in my team, I hope you can line up and say, of the work life you have, finding someone that you enjoy being with, right? You know, you got to find the thing you love doing and people you love working with. And I always say 50% of that never works because you're still happy about the job and you just really hate the leadership principles. And your, you know, your job is to try to figure out how do I change that? How do I get out from underneath this leadership uh, team? Cause I really don't, it's not my fit or you hate your job, but you love the manager or leader that you're with and you realize I'm bored. And I just say, listen, you gotta, you gotta find a way to keep moving that. But if you can find, I love what I do and I love who I'm working with, and you get to do that all day, that's not, not bad. That's pretty good. And in this industry, that's great, especially with this pace. That's a gift, and I think that 
one of the things, sadly, that we lack, and those who listen to me will hear me say this often, I think that you know, good leadership, good leadership principles, probably the rarest element, uh, if we were going to label it as such, in information security. So we often read reports about there's a lack of individuals in the field. We need to hire more people. I often hear managers complain about having open racks and not being able to fill them. And uh, I think all of that, I think we have a much larger leadership shortage than we do a staffing shortage. And so to hear you talk about this and know that you really care about it, I think this is uh, one of the most important things we can spend our time on. And actually one of the reasons why we decided to do a leadership podcast. So this is a kind of a perfect fit. Uh, so the, the lessons that you've shared today for those that are interested in this topic, pay close attention uh, to what's being shared here. Because uh, Charlie, I really enjoy your position on these topics. I think you even, you were the only guest so far that has mentioned the concept, I think, of legacy as well in yeah. getting into leadership. Most people, that doesn't even show up on their radar. So the fact that you naturally brought that up to me, the topic of how do you leave a program? Is it better than it was before you were there? Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about where did you come up with legacy as an important thing? I mean, we're all busy. That's a long-term distal thing. How did legacy, when, when did you start thinking about legacy? I started thinking about legacy pretty much, um, I'd say early on. And, and I'll, I'll put it to you this way, Stephen. I think we're actually all working, all working in legacy moments. And that's really in the things that we're agreeing to do. I think, you know, I had somebody teach me years ago the notion of, are, are you willing to sign your name to that effort? Hmm. Because that is your work. By the way, you're going to move on and this is going to be left behind and people are going to follow this. Is that something you're willing to sign today and put your stamp on it? And when you get put like that, you go, wait a minute, should let me just take that back for one more second. Did I do that research? Did I read that one more thing? Did I make these data points get clear? Because if you put it that way, that's a big responsibility to, to have. And so when you look at these moments, these, these legacy moments will come for different people, whether they're operating an entire division or someone says, you know, well, we, we went from this stock price to that stock price. Well, that's great. But is that legacy or Will it because you know these these companies are perpetual and they will outlive us, mm -hmm. and so you you want to make sure that the things that you put in in the processes and you see that whether it's construction and you see everybody signs that last beam that they're going to put on the top and everybody just reaches in there. Well, no one's ever going to see it except you, and and you know that it's there, and you will always drive by that and thinking I I did I I put that beam at the very top. I'm really happy about that, and you drive by and you just go on. I think these are we, we have these legacy moments, whether we're leading a team or we're responsible for being part of a team, how we show up every day. Those those are, you know, again, with that energy and uh, the ability to give and receive feedback and let people know what what impacts you're having. Those are all legacy moments. And so I think that when you when you continue to move on that, whether that's get a goal or just make it to a day, can we at least get to the end of the day and say, did we get it done? Yeah, we did. If we didn't. Let's, let's chat about that, and that moves into our next day. I like that idea. I break it down kind of in the difference of some of the stuff is going to go on our CV or resume or maybe LinkedIn, mm -hmm. and other stuff is going to maybe get talked about or remembered when it's time to read a eulogy. And that's my hope yes. 
getting into say, you know, they may not show up to the funeral, but if they see the announcement to say, you know what, that crazy bastard cared about me, right? He cared about my career. And that's, that's the thing that to me is the legacy bit. I mean, there's, there's more tactical uh, elements that, that say, Hey, did this person build a program that, that lives on mm -hmm. person help coach an individual out of a bad spot in their career, maybe right. even a bad spot out in their life. Right. We do that sometimes too, right. That they're, maybe the work is okay, but the individual is struggling personally. And well, uh, yeah, you know, I told you that I think the last time we talked, I talked about this story about the guy that wanted to find the six most influential people in his life and go back yes. and thank them. And upon that quest, and that was his goal. He's going to go and thank them for really helping to shape and change my life. And he goes back to, to determine that, Three people can't even recall who he is. And, and yet, whoa, how, how is that? And one other was prompting. Uh, he had to prompt them, like, you know, this, you know, this is this was the background. This was situated this way out. Oh, that's right. And two that knew exactly who he was. And I think the big effort there was he'd run into people who, you know what? They, they didn't have to be called out for shaping their life. They shaped everybody's life. Mm -hmm. And there are those people, and we, we, and we actually have them at work. And we have them in our friendships and, you know, the ones that matter. And I think that's where the gravitational pull is. You know, I always, sometimes I go, your boss isn't your mentor. You need to find them. You need to find mentors. And in that sense, when you, when you can pull those out and decide and go ask, and what are you going to be turned down? Maybe, but keep asking. And I think generally when, when you have that opportunity to differentiate yourself amongst your peers by learning and, and, asking the right questions and having a trusting relationship with someone who's there to help, who's in an observable situation so they can tell you, wow, that last meeting you just did, really, that, man, that wasn't your best. Um, I, I, that's a gift in itself. So I think we all have them. We may not see them in that way. For me, it's, uh, you know, I think about the, what do you say about Charlie when they're not there? And I just hope, wow, fair. No matter what, it was good, always consistently fair and really you really listened. I mean, I don't like the outcome, but it was a super fair way uh, we got there. Getting into, you know, one of the things that you talked about with me is how you hire people, how you find talent. And I think it's important to cover that because I liked kind of your take on that. And, and it's, you're even, even talked about hiring people with, or being willing to hire people with zero experience. Share that with us. Yeah, it's not willing. Um, I want to. And I think that we have a very core set of talent. And I want that job to be, you know, nurturing. I want it to be long term. People don't stay in this industry very long. You have lots of certifications. What I want to find is I really want to find the raw learner, energetic person that's willing to invest early in their career and know that this is, in fact, a training. I talked to you about our North Star doc, which is really about shaping our way forward. It isn't an end state. It's, we want to be so different in this notion of trust and integrity later. We're going to, we're going to go figure it out. But one of those tenants is about talent. And then it does say that talent's super scarce and that we have to grow from within uh, to find these folks. And so I want to look around and I want to look both internally and externally. There's some very good people that are technical. Uh, there are people with great mindsets, whether those are controllers or otherwise, that have a portion of this of this risk-based skill. 
There's others that you're going to have to find deep technical talent, but they can also have somebody attached to them that's learning deep technical talent. Yes. And I like that. Now, so, so I want to make sure our leadership team has that view of, you know, oh, we can't find them. Oh, we can find them. Like we can go to DigiPen. We can go to this community college. We can go to uh, put it out and just put it on LinkedIn. We're going to find people as people reach out to me that say, this is, you know, I just want to be part of this. This is an industry. I'm so, no one wants to give me a shot. I'm like, great. Come on in. I want to, I want to chat with you. I want to put you through a loop. Yeah, maybe you didn't get this one, but now I've got a list. Yes. Right? So now, and the next one comes, I want that one. And so if I find someone that's willing to very much like plumbers and concert and people go, well, you got to go, you started a journey, you know, this level, you get to journeyman. Yeah, good. We should have that. Because when you're investing in the certifications that are here, these are very expensive. What I want to know is I've got somebody with clear energy that is really passionate about learning in this space that I'm willing to put that, you know, 4700 bucks on the line to say, let's go do this. And while you're doing that, this is how we're going to help you. And if we're good, we're going to be able to retain those people. We're not there because they're going to remember who, who did that. They're going to know what company has put that effort for them. And if we create those opportunities and we're talking to them every year and we're letting them know how they're progressing, uh, they're going to be here. Some will fall out because they'll just chase the really cool green grass story. Fine, I'm going to take that risk. But I'm going to find the folks that are that are going to want to be here that are super passionate about this. And this is a really credible, emerging, constantly changing, non-boring state to be in. This is a fun uh, industry. It's a fun practice. You're constantly learning. You're constantly being challenged. It's unlike any other space that I can think of today over the last, at least the last seven to 10 years. Completely agree. If you have someone that's listening, that's interested, that says, hey, you know what? I'm energized by this idea and the words, but I, I don't really know how to get started. And I'm feeling a little more pressure because of kind of the state of the world right now, where I can't bring them in and look at them eye to eye. It now needs to all be done remotely. Do you, first off, what advice do you have to that person that's thinking that way? And do you see that as a barrier or maybe an opportunity? Well, I see it as an opportunity, and I'll just give you an example. And, and in this case, if you're willing to meet people remotely, you can do the same thing that we do with our intern programs. It's no different. We get them, uh, they get assigned, and we meet them virtually this year, and we assign them projects and tasks, and we keep them as a community across the company. In the same way, non-interns can be treated if I know we're going to connect and we've communicated and we've, we feel like there's a fit there from a, you know, an understanding of, of, our, of our, our, you know, kind of our approach and what our company is. And these are the things we're, we're out there trying to safeguard. Um, if they're interested in that, it's no different than an intern that I'm getting as a junior that's going back to be a senior or a senior that I'm trying to get a job offer to because they're, you know, coming out of college. I can treat them in the same way. I, I feel like people show up passionately for the thing they really want. And those that do ask, and they might not get, but they're willing to ask, are people I want to talk to. It's the yeah. ones that don't ask. Now that one-two goes a long way. That, that to me was the thing I'd look for most. You know, do they have 
there's people I turn down uh, for positions that are very well skilled, but if they're not a cultural fit and if they seemingly uh, lack the want to, that's they're they're out. Give me a a, a young energetic person that's just out of school that's or maybe even not even out of school like the intern you mentioned that's the one of the most exciting things to see yeah that can be a, that can be an it or controllership or in any other area of a company not even yours and um and want to you know this is something that they've wanted to do but they're not getting a chance to do it and like i said these are kind of early in career entries and if we follow them along in other words they're we don't lose the fact that Steve started today and we got to talk about, you know, that person in a year and how is that person at two years? And if we brought them along, is this the right time to invest in that certification? Is this the right time for that early in career promo? Is that these, when you get them and you, you treat them uh, as a group that is moving with you, they're there because you have these role changes all the time. Is that person two years ready now, ready to go? Great. Well, we've invested the time. And we're going to do that anyway. From a personnel standpoint, that's one thing. The bit of advice I'd have on this topic is it never stops. Right. I hated the fact that there was a review process and that promotions were only done once a year. I can't stand that. Yeah. Uh, I can't stand the fact that it's so regimented. And I think, you know, reviews for the most part are garbage. <laughs> but it's something that I worked on all year round. There was, a, you were always working on skill development and feedback and coaching and try and working on sort of the promotion process, even if it could, it could only happen once a year, right. it was the evaluation and the feedback. And I, I think too many people get, don't prioritize that enough in leadership. Uh, uh -huh. I think they just focus on it and say, well, it's in November, so I'm going to spend, you know, my October working on this. No, no I, I totally agree with that. I used to say uh, for most of the people that I met, it's the, that review process that they were working on when you walked in and sat down and they were just pulling it off the printer. And you're like, I know you just did this. So in, in the five minutes that it took me to get here, you're just now completing this. So we're going to talk about my last year. Rather than, you know, I, I just think that you've got to sit down and you've got to have these feedback mechanisms. And what I tell my people is, do you know what they have to be good at now? Right? Mm. You just to know. What's in the job description? Nobody even reads the darn thing. But if you <laughs> told me, you know, what are the top four things they need to be good to great at? And you find out, then you kind of say, look for those. And by the way, you know, I'm not a person that likes to read. And I, I do a lot of that from the standpoint of coaching. What I don't want to hear about, heard about, you know, passed along. What I want is observable situations such that when you saw them occur, led you to believe that they were blank. Good at communication, bad at communicating. But you sit down and go, I was in the same meeting state. Right. Right. And just giving you that perspective from the meeting. And someone goes, ah, I got that. Versus, did you hear Steve couldn't communicate? I mean, really? It's, I don't want that. I'd rather have the one where I saw. And that's, that's the coaching moment for me, not what somebody else thinks they saw or heard. I, I really struggle with that on feedback. I like that point. And that's one I have maybe thought about, but not in that way. And I think that's great advice for the CISO, the manager, the director, and everyone in between. And even for an analyst, if you're strong enough and believe, yeah. say, well, is there an example you can, you know, to say to your boss, to say, is there an example where you saw this yourself? And if not, then maybe we need to go to more meetings together. <laughs> you know, well, and that's and, it. Yeah. you're right, because I find out way too many times people write in reviews these terms that they couldn't define themselves. 
based on feedback somebody else gave them. And when you sit back and say, what was the background? What was the situation? What did you observe such that when you saw it led you to believe they weren't great at communicating? What was it? Instead of they can't communicate. Well, that's easy. Everybody writes that. But how's that a coachable moment if we can't go, you really need to proofread your emails. You know, you're, you're just really bad at it. Every, you know, that's why they have spell check. You should run it. Oh, that's, I can do that. That's better than guessing that I got to go take a language skill at night. So <laughs> be super clear. And people have a hard time with that. And yet when you are and they were there, they actually go, yeah, you know what, Steve, I totally blew that. You know, now that I think about it, now that I see it, thanks. Appreciate it. And I'll go work on that. Now, that's perfect advice. I could talk with you about this all day long, but we're, we're at know. the top of the hour. We're going to have to do this again. But uh, I have one final question that's, yeah. uh, that we ask everyone. Pursuant to the name of the show, uh, the new CISO, and you've covered a lot of it already, but what does being a new CISO mean to you? Good question. For me to be a new CISO, it allows me the opportunity to really think about, in this role, thinking about what impact, what, what, what is the nature of protection that I can provide the traveler, the employee, and the company. And think about them in holistic terms about, you know, that, that notion of risk. For me, it's, I have a unique opportunity. Um, and I, I tell folks, I came from a place that built software that you were supposed to run. So it was supposed to be super secure. Now I'm at a place that actually runs the software of a whole bunch of manufacturers that built it. I have a completely different perspective as a new CISO that's actually not in a, my own, I can run multiple products in terms of what's right. I can run it all. For me, it's being able to not just wag this, you know, dog's tail. And for me, it's really about, can I really move this paradigm of trust and integrity forward and do it in a way that multinational, uh, global in reach and impacts a whole bunch of people that want to interact with Expedia in a different way. What a fantastic bit of advice. Charlie, I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, I'm very impressed with you and what you have to share. I've had very few conversations like this. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Steve. Glad to be here. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.